At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Companies. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Today's guest had a plan for his life. And like many of us in our lives, the plan that our guest today had did not exactly work out the way he intended. With a love for extreme sports and adventure, Mike Shaw spent his childhood taking on any sport that would push his personal limits. After finding his passion finally in freestyle skiing, Mike began performing professionally at international levels. Not only performing, but excelling. And yet after numerous injuries, Mike was forced to shift the plan from skiing actually himself to coaching others to excel in the sport. It allowed him to coach up some of the best athletes, not only in Canada, but around the world. And then a seemingly ordinary day at an ordinary practice, life as Mike knew it changed in an instant. While demonstrating stunts to his athletes, he suffered a scorpion-like crash, dislocating and breaking his neck and leaving him paralyzed from his neck down. Determined not only to walk again, but to one day ski, Mike set down a new path riddled with hardship and undoubtedly insurmountable challenges. My friends, I'm gonna encourage you to buckle up and get ready to freestyle on the ride today. You're gonna be inspired. Hey, welcome to Live Inspired. You're gonna be challenged to not allow others to negatively define your life or the possibility within that life. And you will recognize, I think by the end of it, that miracles still happen, the foundation is still firm, and that the best, not only in Mike's life, but in yours, is yet to come. My friends, without further ado, let me bring him on. He's my friend, he's about to be yours. His name is Coach Mike Shaw. Mike Shaw, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey John, thanks for having me, my man. This is awesome. It is awesome, man where you and I first met Florida, but actually that's not at all where you generally do your work and where you live your life. So if I happened to bump into you randomly and did not know your backstory and asked you to introduce yourself to me, how would you introduce yourself now? I don't know if I would lead with my accident story because it is kind of the invisible uh, disability now, but I, I would uh, I'd say my name is Mike Shaw. I'm a speaker, author, brother, son, husband, family member. I am a lover of life and I am here to help. 
Well, we're going to be speaking to this lover of life and this fellow who is here to help now on the Live Inspired podcast. It's going to be a great story. And part of what makes the story great is the roller coaster ride, the mogul bumps, Mike, that you're about to take us on. So you and I met in Florida, but where you were raised was on the far northwestern part of our continent, way up in British Columbia. Just talk about growing up in BC. Yeah, John, I, I grew up in Vernon, British Columbia, Canada. It's in an area called the Okanagan, and the Okanagan Valley is known as the California of Canada. It's kind of counterintuitive to what most people think. As soon as you go north of the border, it's uh, it's all just a frigid, icy cold wasteland up here in Canada. No, it's <laughs> we live in a place where there are lakes, golf courses, wineries, orchards, like everything. The summer summertime, it's an outdoor playground here. We get temperatures that hit into the 100, 100 degrees plus Fahrenheit. And then in the winter, we do get lots of snow. And I grew up playing in the in the mountains, both summer and winter. The sport I fell in love with as a young person was uh, freestyle skiing. And so I grew up around Silver Star Mountain Resort on a pair of skis with my family. And it was uh, really a picture perfect upbringing. Couldn't have had it better, I don't think. When did you begin recognizing that Unlike the O'Leary kids and their dad, who all love skiing, but aren't any good at it. When did you recognize, not only do I love skiing, but I'm pretty doggone good at this thing? I was chasing my brother and some of his friends around the mountain on a snowboard, actually, before I switched to skiing one day and realized that I could clear bigger jumps and I could keep up faster on two edges than just having one under my feet. I was about 15 years old when that happened. And at 16, I had already found that it was my it was my thing. I finally found it. Struggled as a young person in school, like many do, trying to get in my lane, if you will. Once I found something that I had some a bit of talent for, not a ton, but I I was so in love with that I would work the hardest at. Um, I I took the ball and kind of ran with it and started competing at the provincial level, the national level, and even in international competitions for big air slope style hmm. and half pipe skiing. So the new disciplines, and it was so creative and so much fun and always out skiing and competing against your friends. It was just, I, I was in love. So I've taken a video tour of your bedroom with your mother. And uh, she showed me and the rest of the audience all of these awards and trophies and medals that you won as a kid. Uh, you, you used the term big air, big air, man. We got big air. T talk about what, what that means for the listeners and viewers who may not, they may not know the sport and they may not really recognize just how big the air was you were getting as a kid. John, it's hard to describe how good it makes you feel when you soar 20 to 30 feet high on an 80 to 90 foot gap jump, when you spin and flip and you get your grab and that feeling of weightlessness at the apex of your trick, it's really truly like a feeling of flying and it's controlled and there's risk involved. And like any passion, it's a double-edged sword. It can make you feel equally on top of the world as much as it's capable of cutting you down. But I mean, that was part of the beauty of freestyle skiing. Like you would learn to be resilient in the process and because you'd have to pick yourself up when you got knocked down, get back up to the top of the end run. But it was truly that love for that feeling, the euphoria, the adrenaline, the living truly at your edge. You know, that space of uncomfortable where fear, stress, anxiety, progress, growth, learning, 
the magic of life. They all coexist in that space when you're just pushing the envelope and skiing was the place where I could do it the most. And all of my friends around me at the time, the community had developed. It's an individual sport, but I found myself on a team. I was in a freestyle ski club and we were traveling around together, competing together. I, I still look back on that period of my life with some incredibly fond memories. It was, you know, some of the best, uh, best moments. Best moments, tons of highs and some lows. You had a lot of injuries, man. And this just comes with the sport, but go through the laundry list of a few of the injuries that you had as you were uh, elevating in this sport. Freestyle skiing is not free. As a matter of fact, it's uh, you pay for it over time. But I had uh, multiple concussions, like more than I could count on two hands like with all it's lucky i can count that high still but no i had uh i had head injuries soft tissue injuries in my neck and back i tore both my shoulders i broke my wrist i broke both my thumbs i broke my ribs i popped both of the muscles in my hips called having a muscle hematoma at different times those are like the worst bruises you can possibly have they take a long time to heal lots of massage and stuff like that but then i broke both ankles and um i didn't break them at the same time would have been nice if they were like two for one and done as i said but, but as i've said before but it was uh i broke one and then i took a, a long time to heal like a year and a half and then i broke the other one jumping off a trampoline into a foam pit of all things i hit the bottom of a concrete foam pit unknowingly didn't know how shallow the foam was and uh that second ankle was the one that really put kind of the last nail in the coffin on my competitive career in skiing it was really hard i was 19 20 years old maybe only yeah. and uh it felt like my dreams of standing on top of the podium the x games or the olympics just drifted too far out of reach at that point many folks when their dream is removed from them either give up on the dream or life or uh they just kind of quietly fade in, in, into the distance you, you pivoted and I just think it's really cool. And it's going to, it speaks to your character that although you may not be on the podium later on, you may not be in the Olympics, you may not be in the X Games, the gift that you have for that sport, you could impart onto someone else and you became this coach. And what you could not do any longer physically, you could teach others how to do in their own life. Just talk about making that transition. Kind of comes back to the idea that if a dream or a goal is big enough, then you'll still keep working towards it you'll still keep putting the time in and the time's going to pass anyway. So you might as well work towards something that really lights your fire if you, if you can. But for me, when the door on sort of becoming a competitive or a highly successful competitive athlete had closed, there were another, there were, there's always more doors that open windows of opportunity, doors of opportunity, like three, and they all open and they have uh, views of the ocean. These are nice doors right there. Um, they're good. But I, I ended up walking through one, which it led me down the path of helping other people. And I started really, truly my, my journey in, in supporting other people and coaching. And I worked my way up the ranks from my local club to the provincial or our state team, the elite team there, and then the national development halfpipe ski team. And so I was able to take my passion and maybe some of the skill and, or expertise and pass it on to the next generation of up and coming skiers in the sport of half pipe specifically. And so 
I, uh, I, yeah, the sort of peak of my career and the goal was always to try to go to the Olympics and I wanted to be an Olympic coach and, and things like that. So I did help hold on to that dream and was living, living it out just a slightly different way. My athletes were on the world cup circuit, which meant I was there for traveling and on the mm -hmm. world cup circuit. It was, it was really incredible. Well, it's a great segue into where we go next. You're going to leave the great country of Canada, you're going to come way down south to the United States, make your way to the middle part, join me in Colorado, go to my favorite slope called Keystone. And at age 26, man, something that was never part of the plan becomes part of your journey. So take us back to one day, and there's been many days that have changed your life, but this one in particular, take us back to when you're 26 at Keystone. It was December 16th, 2013. And my day started out like any other day on a trip with the team. I walked out of the rental house. We were staying in Frisco, Colorado, just near Keystone, Copper, and Breckenridge, all those great mountains in Summit County. And I walk out the front door in the morning. The air is cold and crisp, the kind that wakes you up even if you're not ready for it, you know. And yeah. I walk out the I walk out the front door to go and start the our rental SUV and take my athletes off to the mountain. We were skiing half pipe in the morning. It was official sanctioned training for the World Cup. We trained from nine until noon. And so I was in more of a technical role at that point. But in the afternoon, some of the athletes wanted to keep skiing. And so I went skiing with them. And we headed off to a part of the of the mountain at Keystone called the Area 51 Terrain Park. Initially, we went there to hit some of the man-made jumps. But as soon as we got there, those jumps were closed. And that almost shut my athletes down, to, to be honest. They, they were really sort of anticipating being able to get some airtime that afternoon to keep training for the halfpipe event. And so those jumps were closed and they went shut down on me to a point where I said, okay, guys, don't worry, we'll find somewhere where we can get some air. And we did. We found a, a pile of snow that had been sort of created by one of those man-made snow guns, but the snow gun was aimed across the mountain and it had blown up a, a big pile that was steep enough that I thought if we hit it with enough speed, we could jump off it. It wasn't machined yet or shaped by uh, one of the groomers, but the first time I hit it, it went well. The second time it went well, the third time and my, it continued going well. And my plan was working with the, with the athletes. They were starting to do some tricks and feeling reconnected with why they started skiing in the first place everybody was having fun it was it was great and then in a routine trick demonstration for one of the athletes i'd performed it well the run prior he crashed this time i said you go first i'll come down after you and in that moment i my life changed forever i i don't know exactly why but i took off sort of 10 feet farther to the left than i did the runs prior which caused me to land in a, a, a area of what we call punchy snow. And um, basically I just punched through a soft layer. I landed on my feet, but I landed heavily and it basically stopped me in my tracks, pitching me forwards onto my head and neck. And my feet came up over top of my body like a scorpion's tail. And then I felt it just this brief, but sharp pop and pain in my neck. Mm. And then nothing. I was like, I started, I just tumbled downhill and I remember feeling winded, but trying to let out the, the, the loudest scream that I could. Cause I, I knew before I'd even stopped falling that this was different than any other, any other fall I'd ever had. 
I could not bounce back. I couldn't stop falling. And it hit me so fast. It was like a brief but sharp pain in my neck and then nothing. Mm. I slid to a stop face down in the snow. My goggles had come down over my nose and mouth. I was yelling into them just, no, 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 not here, not now and not me. Because that brief but sharp pain in my neck was, I just broke my neck. Yeah. And not only that, I couldn't move or feel anything. I couldn't roll over couldn't get off the snow. So I've, I've read your book. I've heard you speak. I've watched stuff online and now I've seen a video of that event. And it just pains me to see this energetic, youthful, athletic, spry, joyful guy on the snow, motionless, yelling out, no, you know, begging, no, no, you know, help me. And then your friends do their best to help you. What do, what do you remember after after hearing the snap and then finding yourself sprawled out and yet unable to move anything. It's a little bit foggy in terms of the order, but I do remember being as clear, like my, it was a really, if you will, like sobering experience. I'd never been more clear in my mind when you're in that state of flight or flight, everything rushes through your head. And I thought about a, um, the fact that I should have landed that trick. Like I went for, I wanted redemption. I wanted to bounce back immediately, but I knew that probably was out of reach. Um, I, the thought went through my head that I'll never ski again. I'll probably never walk. I had a, I had a, a close friend in my, in my community who had had a spinal cord injury. And so I knew what it meant that I'd broken my neck and I couldn't, not only I couldn't move my legs, I couldn't move my arms either. So I, I knew I was in really rough shape. And then I went directly to my family. I thought, well, I just probably ruined my parents' retirement. Legitimately, that's what I thought. I thought that uh, they're going to have to take care of me. I, I did a quick mental scan to make sure I didn't have a concussion because it could have been worse if I was paralyzed and confused, I, I thought. So I was um, sort of immediately thankful in that moment that it it was that I was still there my head wasn't uh I didn't have a head injury <laughs> and and then when the athletes and my and my friend Colin came in they uh they went into uh first responder mode and I went into I had an option it was fight or flight and I chose fight and so I said because one of the guys popped off my ski I felt my face drag on the ground I said did you move me do not move me do not roll me over I need support. I need the on-hill medic. I need the ski patrol. Someone go and get ski patrol. And at that point, the athletes went into, into action and went and got support and helped get me off the snow. So Koblak is shot at across the mountain. Ski patrol shows up the toboggan, takes you down the hill. You end up in a helicopter. You ultimately get flown down to Denver, St. Anthony's hospital. Exactly. Yep. End up at St. Anthony's hospital. And, uh, as you're rolling in and out of the MRI machine and as they're slowly bringing you up to speed on what has happened and what this is probably going to mean to you going forward. Do you remember what the doctor told you uh, to expect? Yeah. The weight of the situ of my situation really sank in when um, in the consultation before surgery, my surgeon, who's now a great friend of mine, Dr. Thomas Puchak, he was trying to encourage me to do surgery for one, because he said that uh, if I didn't, I would never walk again. I'd probably never, I, things just wouldn't have changed. I would have remained a complete quadriplegic, not being able to move anything from the neck down. And so he said, there are some risks involved with doing the surgery though, 
you could wake up on a ventilator and not be because you've paralyzed your diaphragm partially up to you've got about 60% of your lung capacity right now. And we hope that'll improve if you do it, but it could get worse. We also, I mean, there's also the risk of fatality in involved in this surgery so close to your brainstem, but I said, okay, doctor, well, those are the risks. What are the chances of me getting better and, you know, walking this things off, this thing off if we do the surgery? And he said, well, we can't be sure, but maybe like 50, 50, you might get some, uh, neurological, uh, healing and neuropathic functioning returning. And I said, 50, 50 doc. I'm like, those are great odds. That's way better than zero. <laughs> put me in. What are we waiting for? Get me in there. And um, I was always a bit of a risk taker, but I, I I looked at my situation and realized that the risk may very well be worth the reward. And in this case, I am so, so glad that I made that choice back then and had a successful surgery. And that was the catalyst to me having a, quite a unique recovery. Incredibly unique. It's going to be a, a slow, long, grueling one. You wake up from surgery is my understanding on night one and Colin, one of your buddies is in the room. And one of the very first things you do is you have to make a phone call. Like, you know, the amazing thing is you're out of the country, man. You're a Canadian. You're stuck here down in the United States with us when this thing happens and your family is back home. So you wanted to call your mom. Uh, for me, it's just such a moving reality and a difficult, painful conversation, but one that you've got to have. So talk, talk about that foot, that first phone call to mom. Well, first of all, I said, okay, I better let my mom know now what's happened. And called said, are you kidding, man? We, we had to let her know before you went in for surgery. We didn't know if you were coming out. And I said, oh, really? Like you always, always wait until you know the worst case scenario and the best case scenario. So you have, you can, you can inform her of that. And but uh, I said, okay, I better call my mom. And anyway, uh, we we had a really hard conversation. It was one of her great fears of me performing this sport, freestyle skiing, because there was a risk involved with it. And I knew the risks. And um, I was willing to to um, manage those, to do what I loved. And But I knew that it was at the cost of my, my, uh, my mom and my, even my dad, like, my mom wore hard on her sleeve. She couldn't come into the hospital without fail in the first month without being in tears at least once in my hospital room. And then my dad, he was kind of like the opposite. He was really like my rock. And I have a mixed family. I got a stepdad too. And um, they were all there. And I, they were really great pillars to lean on to a point where my dad was, you know, taking care of some of the paperwork and business things, stuff like that. And saying, you know, you've been laying around an awful lot late an awful lot lately, Mike, when are you going to get up and get on with it? But those, those initial conversations were devastating because I realized that it wasn't just me. My actions had an impact on everybody around me. And mm. you've probably heard the saying family first before, and it couldn't be more true when you start thinking about the first aftershock, the first wave of the blast of the incident that happened that hit them harder than it hit anybody. And I knew it. And that's why those, those calls were so hard, but so necessary to have. Man, a couple of days in, you are told by a doctor that you'll probably never walk again. J just get used to the fact that you'll probably never walk again. Uh, how did you respond to that? That's a good question. Um, I woke up 
if you can imagine, I think it was day two or three in the hospital. I can't remember exactly. They had me on a lot of narcotics then to deal with pain, but I woke up and there were these two gentlemen standing at the end of my bed and you can picture them, right? They're both wearing the white lab coats, stethoscope around the neck, clipboard in hand, my chart, reading it. One of the doctors I recognized that was the surgeon. He was a tall, like dark featured, sharp goatee, Croatian man. And then uh, beside him, standing about a full head shorter than him, white platinum hair, old white whispery mustache. This guy looked like the oldest thing in the hospital, I swear. He uh, he, may, he probably, he might have been, actually. It was a new it facility. It wasn't St. Anthony himself. Yeah, it's a new facility. <laughs> But he'd seen more. He was the spinal specialist. And I forgive me. I, I wish I knew his name. I can't remember. I didn't didn't ever get it. But um, because at first he said, uh, he said to me, Mike, you should prepare yourself because you're never you're probably never going to walk again. In fact, you'll be lucky if you get back the use of your arms. And uh, he had seen more people come through the doors of his intensive care unit than anybody else as the spinal specialist. And so it hit me like a ton of bricks. And I remember just like kind of being knocked back. I mean, how do you know? And I might not have said it exactly like that, but I said to him, I said, how do you know? Like why that's all good that you're telling me that, but why? And what what's the reason for it? And he told me all the reasons for um, why I, I should expect that. The MRI images didn't look good. My surgeon corroborated that when he was in there, it didn't look look good. My my neck bent so far backwards that it actually dislocated and the spine shifted backwards and crushed the spinal cord. Um, they did reset it, however, and cut away a lot of bone. I'm fused in five different vertebrae in my neck. Um, they 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 did a lot of work in there to do as best they could to preserve the cord because that's ultimately what I'd injured. But um it didn't look good. And so I, I heard them. I listened. I said, okay, but I don't know if you're right. And it's one thing I've said to people time and time again, that nobody in this world knows what you're capable of, but you, mm. and you can't let people define your possibilities, or in this case, someone trying to define my impossibility. <laughs> you're capable of more than you think you are. You can do more than you think you can do. I, you might've heard those before, but I, I like the idea of you can do as much as you think you can do. And so in that moment, I set my sights on not just walking again, but getting back to the mountains. Mm. And I, I remember thinking I'll be okay. Like mentally and emotionally, I will be fine. I will live a full life after this pain, after this loss and the suffering, whether my body heals or not. I was okay. I accepted my condition, but I didn't mean I wasn't going to just give it my all in recovery and aim high, really high to try to get back on top. And uh, boy, am I glad I did. <laughs> well, so am I. It's why ultimately you and I ended up bumping into each other in Florida, far away from the slopes. Uh, we'll give away the end of the story. You were on your feet walking toward me when I first met you. So uh, we we know how the thing ends, but that journey toward that was a <laughs> incredibly difficult one and filled with ups and downs and a lot of disappointments and a lot of agony, a lot of emotional pain and grind uh, and reasons to celebrate. So I'm going to speed up just a little bit. 
you slowly get use of your legs, not your finger, not your fingers, not your wrists, not your toes, but eventually your legs will begin moving. You slowly get use of your arms just a little bit. Eventually things slowly come back. And about three and a half weeks in, you get use of, drum roll, your bladder. So for like three and a half weeks, it wasn't yours to use. And then one night you, um, you regain use of the ability to use the bathroom. Which for those of us who have never not known what that's like, it's like, well, what's the big deal? But when you have been, when you've had something taken away from you, then it comes back into your life. It makes it all the more sweet. So I'd like you just to share what you remember about (laughs) in, in PG rated terms, what it was like the first time you were able to use the restroom. Oh, it was, uh, like the ultimate relief because the the stress. So what had actually happened is I had an indwelling catheter the whole time for three weeks. So I wasn't, I didn't have to go to the bathroom. It was just, you know, I was um, plugged in the whole time to a little reservoir bag that I could just, it would, it just happened. And it's one of the um, biggest challenges for anybody that lives with a spinal cord injury and it's really truly invisible. Most people see the wheelchair as yeah. the real hardship, but it's the bowel, bladder, that whole system, that area of your your body is all affected. And for me, when they took out the the indwelling catheter, I didn't know if I was going to be able to go again. And um, I was able to, and I've never been so grateful for something in in my life because it really it impacts your quality of life massively being able to regulate those things on your own. And that was another sort of massive, like small, something that we don't really notice on a daily basis that we might take for granted. But massive for me in that moment, knowing that I could just have that level of freedom and control in in my life going forward, because I knew the alternative was um, not quite as pretty if you're having to do intermittent catheterizations and stuff like that. And that's getting really personal. And it's something that a lot of people that aren't exposed to spinal cord injuries don't really know about because they see the wheelchair. And it's like, you can identify with that as being the the challenge and the struggle, but there's so much more below the surface and everybody's got, it's no different for you or anybody else listening here. We've all got, you know, external and internal struggles that we go through. Sometimes it's external, oftentimes it's internal and it hit in that moment for me, I had like a massive weight lifted. And so I felt the light. It was wonderful. Mm. You also talked about, Hey, I'm being a little vulnerable here. Yeah. You were being a little vulnerable. So I'm going to read a quote from you. You, you wrote the inability to be vulnerable paralyzed me long before my accident did. Vulnerability was about weakness. Talk about that. You thought vulnerability was about weakness. And you felt paralyzed by it even before the accident. Tell me more. It's a concept that I learned from like a really famous um, psychologist and researcher, Brene Brown. I'm sure that your listeners are familiar with her work. She's incredible, but she posits that vulnerability is strength. It takes more courage. And this is what I learned in the process of reflecting on my experience that it took more courage and strength to be vulnerable than it did to conceal my emotions. And for the longest time in my life, I didn't have an outgoing nature. I wasn't open. I'd let my actions do a lot of the speaking for me. I mean, part of being in freestyle skiing, it was really, if you could hit the jump, you could 
be part of the community. And you didn't like, I didn't have to know myself all that well. And um, so as a young person, I, I struggled a little bit with that, or maybe I should say a lot sometimes, but it was really the, the, the idea that with great courage, you could overcome some of those vulnerabilities and actually put yourself out there. And mm -hmm. that's what I started being able to do. And it was a total gift in the whole, the whole uh, saga of my, my accent that might be one of the, one of the true gifts of, of or gifts of spinal cord injury for me in the wake of things. Yeah. When I just getting to know your story, the way I feel like I do now, it's, it's the vision, it's the belief, it's the gratitude, and then the boldness to be real and vulnerable about it. Like all those things just coalesce in your recovery and your healing and in your life. We could spend a lot of time hanging out on the therapy mats and having our OTs visit us and our PTs visit us, but I'm going to, I'm going to speed roll a little bit. We're going to hop on to a ski lift in Whistler, British Columbia, I think one year after the accident, my understanding, and you can take us forward once you get off the ski lift is that uh, it was a year after the accident, you are now back on your feet and you are about to take a run down the mountain. What was it like when you got to the top of the mountain? My goodness, it was incredible, John, like my, I, I call it my neck break anniversary or my first neck break anniversary. Some people call it the indie day, like I'm not dead yet day, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I ended up setting a goal after I conquered the first one of walking out of the hospital. And that was after three and a half months, I, I spent an entire year essentially in rehab, just recovering my body. Brutal. Yeah. And not the type of rehab that some people associate with. This was all about physiotherapy, occupational therapy. I was just working at rebuilding my body. It was a blank canvas. I went from 182 pounds of like lean athlete to 139 pounds. So I really had my work cut out for me. And at a year from the day I, I, st I stepped into my skis at the top of Whistler and made my way down, I did one run. It was really challenging but it was so worth celebrating. I could not believe I was back on snow. It was incredible. For me, the coolest part is you get off at the top of the mountain and you're uh, you're not by yourself. My favorite run is when I'm with my family, my little boys, my wife and my little girl. And we're some of the first ones down and there's no one in front of you. Like there's just something magical about, about, about that. But Dude, you weren't the only one on the mountain. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of friends and family and cheerleaders up top already, ready to ski behind you as you made your way. Um, it's a reminder to me, you can't, you can't do it by yourself. Even in an individual sport like skiing, you're not going to do it by yourself. Oh, you're so right about that. We work and are supported by teams in almost everything we do in life whether it's teams within our community, our family structure, our works, our work teams. It, I had people supporting me all the way through my recovery, but in that moment I had a, an entourage, certainly it was 50 or 60 of us up on the mountain and we had cameras rolling. My friends had started shooting a documentary film about what was going on with me and they were all there. And so um, I, I remember leading the group and I took a wrong turn. <laughs> you, you'd think I lived in Whistler for four years. You'd think I'd know the runs a little better than I did, but I, I went down one of the steepest blue runs to get down to the Valley. And I remember getting to the top of this thinking like, who on earth this, like, why are we doing this run? This is crazy. And I, I actually said that out loud 
And I said, well, we're all following you, Mike. <laughs> and so I led myself down this wrong turn, but uh, we ended, I ended up making it all the way to the bottom. It was incredibly challenging. My body was completely fried after just one run. Um, and I'll do uh, on like honesty and humility. I, I had parts of that day that were like salt in the wound like a dagger in my heart, knowing that I still was so, my goal or like of getting back to the mountains was still so far, like to do it the way I used to do it was still so far out of reach, but definitely the perspective of knowing how lucky I was just to be there, to ride the chairlift with friends, to stand on top of the mountain and take in that mountain air and the view yeah. that, that perspective of holding on to the gifts and not the gaps was what really took me through. And it was such a reason to celebrate. I'm so mm. lucky to be able to, to, to be back in the mountains. It's incredible. And that was just day one. Well, it makes me think about what it looked like a year earlier and the, the, the wild three and a half month journey in hospital. And then the year afterwards of recovery and even beyond that, for the most part, your fellow patients cheered as you got out of that wheelchair the first time. And they cheered as you took your first step and steps and then strides, but not everybody. That there were some folks who came in, you're an incomplete, I think you injured C3, C4, C5. Mm -hmm. There were some who were complete and in all likelihood, barring miracle or just a radical change in science, they, they, they probably never walk again. And some were, um, I don't know if jealous is the word, but how do you respond to folks who don't celebrate your, your recovery? I I, res I respond with empathy first and foremost because I don't know what it's like. I got the opportunity to walk away from a spinal cord injury. I experienced what it was like to live in a wheelchair for a period of time and have that uncertainty, and it was devastating and hard. And I, I promise you I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I did ultimately get to walk away from it. And I know that I'm one of the lucky ones. I mean, maybe it's one in a million, one in 10 million, my recovery, legitimately, I've heard it described as a miracle. And um, so I, I, I meet them with empathy. And um, I just, I remember thinking the people that kind of resented me at the time or made sort of mention of how they felt in those moments. And I didn't understand at the time. And it gave me um, sort of fuel on the fire to get out of the hospital and get get moving. And it, it did ignite my soul a little bit, set me on fire, if you will. But um, I, uh, and I mean, I mean that with all uh, in good taste, obviously, John, but the- uh, the, uh, <laughs> the book's already been written, man. You got to come up with your own title. Yeah, right. The- uh, the the big thing for me though is that I I I try to live by the the sort of law that you don't know what someone else is going through till you walk a mile in their shoes. And for me, especially, my challenges and my struggles are still very much invisible. And so I I try to have a lot of uh, empathy for people on a daily basis too. It's not just uh, restricted to those times in the hospital or things like that, because you really truly never know what someone's going through. And it could be the person who's flipping out on the cashier at the grocery store and you look at them, and you go, well, you know, why would they be so angry about, you know, ringed in a, an item that was rung in incorrectly or something like that. But if you look at them and go, well, I wonder what else is going on. I wonder what's below the surface 
there that this is this the breaking point i i try to meet everyone like that with a, a degree of empathy because you just never know what someone's going through and everybody has challenges what's hard is hard um what's hard for you might not be hard for me and what's hard for me might be a total walk in the park for you we all have different experiences but generally speaking we all go through adversity we all go through hardship in life you can't live a full life and love without having grief mm. there's balance there's balance you can't have well, a high mountain peak without a low valley bottom. And so in in life, and for me, I try to, I, I mean, looking back, it was hard to hold that perspective. But now with what I've learned that if we can meet people with empathy and care, compassion, it's a, it makes a, you know, makes our communities a little, a little better, a little brighter. You're known these days for this miraculous healing. You're known for being a man of healing. You're known for being a great coach, a great speaker, a great guy a guy who's focused on gratitude and abundance and making a difference and, and pouring into those who are coming behind you, but also lately known for a guy who really speaks to grief, which may not seem like that seems incongruent, except no, not at all. You lost something close to you. You learned a lot about that and that's called grief. So what have you learned about grief along the journey? Oh, that's, I'm glad you brought us here. Thank you. I, I learned that uh, grief takes all different shapes and forms, and it shows up in life in different ways. It could be someone can grieve their loss of personal identity when they retire from a career that they've had their whole life and feel a sudden loss. But grief is really, truly the, the pain and suffering we go through when you lose something that mattered. And in my case, much like in yours, it was sudden, abrupt, traumatic loss and in some cases, we have uh, we have that in life where we lose loved ones and it's sudden. There are times where we have to go through um, journeys of grief with uh, disease and 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 understanding our own mortality and and things like that. But the thing that's true for everybody is we're all going to experience it. If you want to truly live a full life, we cannot live without grief. But my perspective on grief shifted and how to sort of manage it because we'll never be free completely. If the loss mattered and the loss was significant, it shouldn't. Techni like if we look at it that way and you go, okay, imagine you lose a loved one. Like I've, I've worked with um, people that have had intense losses, like things that I could never quite fathom. And uh, especially when it comes to a loved one, like a family member. And I said, well, imagine if you didn't have that person in your life in the first place, that would be a greater tragedy. But if you get over your grief for this person, it's not like getting over a bad relationship where you want to get over that feeling or the loss of that, that kind of grief. That would be like getting over the love that you had for the person. And so you want to take that with you. But if you want to take that love with you, it means you're likely going to have to take the grief with you. Mm. And it does get easier, or maybe I should say it gets less hard. Because when the loss mattered, the grief is significant. But for me, I realized that there was this strong connection between gratitude and seeking the gifts of what I gained in life from skiing and not focusing on the loss of that, that serious uh, loss. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you poignantly, because so many folks who listen to this 
podcast, just struggle. And if it's not them, it's the person to their left and right. You know, there's a lot of a lot of hopelessness out there, a lot of despair, a lot of struggle, a lot of need for healing. And um, and right now, somebody might be listening to this saying, yeah, you know what? This dude's able to walk again. I'm not. Or this guy in the introduction talked about being a, being a husband. Good for him. I never found someone who would see beauty in me. Or this guy's found his passion as a speaker and a writer, coach, all the stuff. I haven't found my calling yet. So for the folks out there who are in the midst of grief and in the midst of struggle and in the midst of the storm, what's the encouragement for them? It's counterintuitive to think about all that you have to feel thankful for when you feel so low. It really, truly is. And it takes effort and practice. And you might look outside, you'll certainly look within to find the things about yourself and about your situation that you do have to feel thankful for, because there's always something. And that little boost of oxytocin and serotonin, those neurochemicals that get produced, the warm and fuzzies when you feel thankful can actually shift your physiology. So you start taking tangible steps forward to pull yourself out of the depths. I once worked with an army vet. He was a He's struggling with PTSD. And he said, what happens if your valley bottom is lower than the mountain peak you've ever stood on top of? Like I'm at the bedrock, the gates of hell. I'm pounding my fists, bloody knuckles, trying to get in. And I said, well, it's probably the hardest for you then to look for the gifts and try to find the gratitude in your situation. But what has what happened, and it didn't hit me right in that moment, I thought about this long and hard, was that that depth that rock bottom now creates a greater emotional capacity to appreciate new highs. If there is balance in life, which I truly believe with love and grief, there's balance. Um, If your low is lower than you think you've ever been before in terms of the height of the mountain peak, you just increased the height of your mountain peak. And so you should be excited to get back there because when you do, and when you start taking steps, even if it's figure, physically or figuratively speaking, you take steps back up the mountain. Once you stand on top in the sun, it will feel that much brighter because you have the profound perspective um, contrast to appreciate that light from being so low. And for me, this the power of gratitude just expedited my healing process physically, emotionally, mentally, and took me to new heights. I cannot quantify on the, uh, the value in, um, in just being grateful on a regular basis and what that's brought to my life. I wouldn't be where I am or who I am now without it. When people hear you speak or read your book or follow you online or, uh, meet you in a grocery store or a ski slope, and then they part ways. How do you hope that they're different or better or enlightened because of that experience? What's one thing that you hope they take away that maybe they did not have before they bumped into you? I would hope that people could take away if a perspective of being grateful every day, if that were it, but that's not always what you get when you just bump into someone hard to communicate that. But if, um, if somebody left an experience with me and said that person appreciates the gifts of life and not maybe having known that I had to have them all taken away 
to finally appreciate that, I think that would be huge. And I'm a firm believer that you don't have to go through the trauma and the loss and the suffering to start appreciating and start living uh, a different perspective in your life. And, and otherwise, I mean, I wouldn't have a, have a job. I don't think if I was trying to get people to go through the, if it, if it took what like has happened to you or to, to me to go through this, I just, we wouldn't be here, but we are here and we're, and we're helping. And so I, I would hope that that would be kind of the sense that was left. Like, um, maybe there's something I can kind of appreciate too, mm. that I'm not right now. Well, today you and I record this on Wednesday. It's Ash Wednesday in my faith background. And early this morning, six o'clock, my wife and I went to church and the pastor dipped his thumb into some ashes and wiped on our foreheads with, and then uttered these words, remember, man, that you are dust and to dust you shall return. And that's kind of dark if you view it through one lens. But for me, it's this lens that grounds me and enlightens me and encourages me and keeps me evervescent that in spite of the challenges of today, the best is yet to come. And I think you've experienced that same summit. So my friend, you and I now are going to move toward that, uh, toward the next ride through what we call the Live Inspired 7. So come, come on over with me, grab those the, the planks one more time. You and I got a little bit more to ski. What's been the most impactful or the most inspirational book you've ever read? I mean, I already mentioned Brene Brown, but Darren Greatly is an incredible one about um, courage and vulnerability. A book on mindset for me that really resonated with the growth mindset was Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. But Darren Hardy, The Compound Effect, that is just about small steps towards a better tomorrow. Doesn't have to be massive departures from what we're doing right now. And then I also really like for a book on Stoic philosophy and resilience, The Obstacle is the Way <laughs> by Ryan Holiday. The cool thing about do, doing this show long enough is you hear some of the same titles again and again and again. And another cool aspect of it all is frequently those are guests that we've had on the podcast. So I, I, I love the books that you're celebrating, the folks that you're shining a light onto. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possess as a little kid growing up in British Columbia that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? That's a good one. Like you can go to imagination, curiosity, things like that. I kind of think that when I was young, I had uh, potentially a little bit more natural or pure humility. Hmm. I think with the way that the world is, we live in a structure system where you've, I mean, there's there's materialism and, and, and concept of like comparison and measuring ourselves against other people and thinking that we need to be a certain way or whatever. And if you were to have just the humility and be humble and, and, and which involves the perspective of the gratitude. And, you know, something to strive for, man, that's beautiful. So returning to that childlike humility and the wide eyes that you skied down the slopes with as a little one, if, if you could sit on a, how about, how about a, a ski lift? And have a nice long conversation with anyone, living or deceased. Who would you like to take that ride up the mountain with? My grandfather. And I I know that that's a, probably a common answer to that question, like a family member like that. But my grandfather, is he's, he's alive. He lives in, in England. He's 98 years old. Wow. He learned to walk three times in his life. Once after typhoid fever once after getting hit by a mortar shell in world war ii and once naturally of course but he's um 
he is a, a warrior and has a, a lot of wisdom. And I, I love, love, love our conversations and just wish I could have more of them, but we're pretty, pretty far apart being Western Canada and the UK. So he's the one he, I would, I would spend time with hands down. Man, I hope, I, I hope you book your ticket to go see him. And if you go take me with you, because I view those guys as the greatest generation and what they built and the humility with which they built it and the dogged determination with which they used is something that our society would benefit from again. I agree. I was there last spring, but it still is not frequent enough. Well, he's got a what's, 99th birthday coming up in April. Well, maybe I can go. Uh, what's, his, what's his birthday? April 4th. April 4th. Happy birthday, Grandpa. Maybe. We love you, man. What's the best advice Grandpa or anyone else ever gave you? He, it's in my book actually, but um, in the in the acknowledgments. But in life, there will be doldrums, but don't lose heart. We all have it within ourselves to push through, and that actually that uh, that came from my grandfather. What advice? Now you have a chance of answering that question from a moment ago. What advice would you give yourself at age twenty, if you could go back in time and whisper some wisdom to that hotshot skier? What would you say? I, I would I would love to go back and tell myself to believe in myself a little bit more wholeheartedly and to know that I had um, a, a lot to, to bring to the world, that my self-worth was more than I thought it was potentially. And I think all for all young people, anybody that is listening out there, just know like you have so much to offer to the people around you, the people that care about you. And, and I wish I could have gone back and just told myself to believe in myself and given myself some encouragement and not to be so hard on, hard on myself and maybe a little bit too humble or um, tell, tell that person that, uh, that they could really go and get it and, and, and work as hard as, as possible towards your dreams. So Mike, if your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item that really matters to you, what, what's the one thing you would grab? I have, uh, that's a tough one to answer too. I've got like all the medals and things like that, which are, you know, memories and a box of photos and things like that. But I've got a, a gratitude journal actually. and it's a gratitude journal for my wife and it helps me remind myself on a, on a daily basis, regular basis of how lucky I am to have her. And I've written in it for countless number of days now. And so if I were to lose that, I mean, I could just start over obviously, but it's something that I come back to that I really appreciate that helps me, uh, helps me uh, love her even more. Mike Shaw, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? I don't know if it's a sentence, it's more of a statement, but like, or a slogan, but grateful every day. If you have the reverence and the, and the will and the, to live your life with gratitude on a daily basis, you can turn even your bad days into good days because there's always something so often on our bad days, it's for one conversation or one missed email or something that happens that can put us into a spiral. But if you were to look at the course of the day and just do a quick audit of the wins, 
and feel thankful, genuinely thankful for those moments, the things that went right, you can shift, you can shake off all the stress, the anxiety, and just turn every, even the bad days into good days and the good days into great days. So grateful every day. That's it. Well, it was never part of the plan, but Mike is grateful for every day. And Mike, we're grateful that you took time from your busy day to spend part of it with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really special. I hope everybody out there pulled, took something away from it that was of value. And I just uh, I appreciate all you for listening. And thanks, John, for having me. Well, one of my favorite things Mike said was this, hold on to the gifts and not the gaps. I love that. Hold on to the gifts and not the gaps. My friends, during seasons of struggle, personally, professionally, financially, spiritually, be reminded to hold on to the gifts of life that you possess and release, let go of the gaps you feel might right now be missing. Because if you enjoyed today's episode, let me give you a couple other conversations that might inspire you to recognize the profound gift and miracle alive and well within your life. One of the best, I think, that will embolden you to be bold in your life is my dear friend. Her name is Bethany Hamilton. You may know that name. You know it because at age 13, Bethany Hamilton was attacked by a shark while surfing. She lost her arm and she nearly lost her life. Just one month after the attack, though, and with the help of faith, her family, gratitude, Bethany returned to her passion of surfing. <clears throat> you may remember that story because it was told to Oprah on her couch. It was also told in the movie Soul Surfer. It's a great episode. You can learn more about Bethany Hamilton on the Live Inspired podcast. It's episode 178. And if you have any struggles or challenges finding that episode, let your fingers do the walking. Cruise on over right now to John O'Leary Inspires.com forward slash podcast. We'll have a link to Bethany's interview right there. My friends, if you enjoyed listening and freestyling through episodes like this one as much as I and our organization and Amy enjoys bringing it to you, do me a big favor. Tell your friends that you work with, you worship with, you work out with, that you tune into the Live Inspired podcast, and they should too. If you've not yet subscribed, oh my goodness, what a mistake. You can do it right now, though. We can make amends. We can come back together. Subscribe right now. It ensures that you will not miss the future episodes, and there are some amazing future episodes to come. I'm looking forward to bringing them to you. So, my friends, for this time, and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Your life is a gift. Live inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com.